Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of the Haskin Cast podcast. I'm very excited today to have my buddy Randy Rohrbach on the show. Uh, Randy and I have known each other for years. We connected over my book, Becoming an Indie Film Composer, when it was in its, I think, first or second revision. I can't remember now. And uh, he happened to uh, move to Vegas before I did. So when I would come up to Vegas, we would meet for lunch, and then uh, then I moved up here, and we hardly saw each other because life just got too busy. Uh, but we did put out an album together under the uh, Las Vegas Holiday Trio, which was a, a fun little Christmas album to work on. Great learning experience for both of us. And uh, we had a wonderful singer, uh, Angelina, on there as well. Uh, a lot of fun, a great project. And um, Randy is has been an audio engineer for many, many years. He's uh, one of the people that even worked with flat transferring albums to CD when that first came out uh, a while back. So he's a, a great person to know, a great person to talk to. He's just chock full of information. And uh, without further ado, let's bring Randy on. And Randy, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Scott. And you? I'm doing great, thanks. Thanks for coming on. It's so great to talk to you, as always. It's my pleasure. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you and, and be a part of this. Um, let's, uh, let's, uh, talk, let's talk shop. Yes. Well, that's something we never have a problem doing. Never. <laughs> Before we started recording, we were talking about uh, your, your logic setup. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and then what your setup is. I um, actually I do a bunch of different things. Um, my setup uh, really is I use the MacBook Pro um, kind of as a central hub for, for my uh, recording and mixing setup. Um, I have tied into a, a Tascam I.O. for my outboard effects and, and my guitars and amps and my keyboards. Um, as well as my MIDI board, and I, I use a, a rather large uh, uh, flat panel TV for monitor. Um, it's a very straightforward setup. It's nothing fancy. Um, I kind of like the uh, being able to do the old school um, playing music uh, with my guitars and, and my my pianos. So I, I like the flexibility of, of my setup. And honestly, it's very mobile. It will fit into literally a, a small suitcase, and I can go with it if I need to. Oh, that's good, because if you ever get a you know field job, it's always good to be able to just pick up and move it, whereas I really could not do that. Right. Um, I keep telling myself I'm going to build a mobile system, and you know I, I just continue to keep telling myself that. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things that I like about the MacBook Pro is because it is such a small, it, it's a powerhouse in a small package, and the fact that it's mobile, um, you know, I kind of got my start, um, you know, wanting to compose music and, and, and be involved in the film industry, and you know, back in uh, 2005, I had a home built, and part of that I had a, a studio built into it for for the fact that I wanted. To, I was serious about, you know, getting into recording and producing, um, you know, film score or, or commercials or whatever it was back then that I was wanting to do. And 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 um, I found myself um, kind of opening my doors to some of the local talent, and uh, you know, um, my aspirations kind of went one direction. And I find myself um, kind of seeing that there was a need to sort of teach the next generation of, of uh, singers and songwriters. Um, I lived in a small town in Texas, uh, college students, and so there was a lot of uh, singer-songwriters because that, you know, the little shows at, at some of the college bars and stuff like that. They uh, would bring me a, a demo on, a, on a, a flash drive, and 
I'm like, how did you record this? And so it, it became a, a lesson uh, to them in, in teaching them kind of, uh, you know, this is a technique, this is how you want to record yourself. And, you know, it, it, it's amazing how um, home studios have, have just exploded over the past, you know, uh, 15, 15 years. And uh, everybody, every, it's affordable, people can do it. People don't understand uh, really how to use the tools they, that they're given. Uh, and so I kind of found myself in that that area of becoming more of a teacher and mentor um, and less of uh, trying to record and compose my own music. So it's kind of a, an interesting start to, to my career uh, in um, you know, having my own home studio. Sure. Are are you um, are you glad that you learned to do things the old school way and not depend on plugins to do everything you need, or be able to you know utilize your plugins more because you know how to do analog? Yeah, I do. I I am very blessed in the fact that I grew up at a time where where everything was still on tape and and everything was very much analog. And you know, I think um, you know some of us old school engineers. Um, you know, we, we did what we did through experimentation, um, and this just by trial and error, we created the sounds and, and the um, the the recordings that we did back then. And, and so I was fortunate because I was kind of at the tail end of the analog era as digital became more mainstream. So, you know, being part and seeing part of, of, of technology, because clearly the 80s were... Um, Really, a big transitional time in the, in, in the music industry. As you know, we transitioned from analog tape to you know digital recordings, and, and the differences between the two are very are, are very stark. Oh, yeah. um, analog has huge amount of limitations. Tape, magnetic tape, has its limitations, and when you get into the digital world, the, the headroom uh, to your recordings is much different. You know, we, we discovered the loudest wars towards the end of the 90s and the early 2000s because of digital technology. And, you know, I um, I still prefer um, analog, but the time that it takes to do stuff with analog equipment um, is considerably longer than, than the virtual world that we, we all work in nowadays. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's interesting, though, that we try so hard to recreate the analog sound digitally because we love the sound, but we didn't love the work involved Yeah, and the time it took. You know, we can get so much more done now, but we have to work really hard to make that sound and feel the same as it used to be. I agree. And and people people listen to music differently, um, you know, than, than what we used to. You know, we... Uh, we uh, were a society of having, you know, big, big stereo systems, big speakers in, in, in the, the early days. And, and um, you know, now a, a lot of music is listened to uh, on headphones and on very small devices. And so the quality difference is, is night and day. Um, you know, digital was a big marketing tool for, for speaker manufacturers as well as, as uh, you know, uh, audio equipment manufacturers, but the reality is that um, digital recordings um, allowed us a, a, almost a two-pure um, of a recording. It, it reveals a lot of uh, the stuff that as engineers we tried to hide. Right. Yeah. You know, take this became more prevalent. Um, you know, uh, I, I spent some time as a transfer engineer in the, in the late 80s, um, transferring 
you know, submasters and, 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 you know, process them for uh, digital, uh, for compact disc. And I was always amazed at, at, at when I would hear things that, you know, I don't, when I would listen to a record or laughingly cassettes or, or A-tracks that you didn't hear, uh, you know. And um, I, I was rather surprised at the amount of cases that was heard, you know, in these transfers. Uh, you know, nowadays, cases, what is that? Like, you, you don't, you know, you can lose the signal pretty hard and, and not have uh, noise that you did back with analog equipment. It, it's much different now. It really is, and and you know it's it's interesting because you know when I listen to a lot of these remastered albums from you know back in the '60s and the '70s stuff that I grew up with, you know the the sound of the album it wasn't about it being perfectly clean. That was an instrument. That was part of the sound of the album. Correct. And now it seems like almost every album, because of the way that they're recorded, and I, I'm talking more albums on like a high level commercial level but uh you know they they seem to all have the same sound where you can't tell what album a song comes from because all the albums sound exactly the same whereas in the 60s and the 70s bands would release an album and even in the 80s uh every album would have its own unique sound right and like i said i would like to say that we were we were like pioneers back then we were we were achieving uh sounds and 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 doing things with with analog equipment that you know, now an algorithm is what manipulates the sound. But back then, to, to get, you know, a, a, a phase effect or, or um, you know, a reverse symbol, you, you were cutting tape or, or you were blending two sources together that were slightly off and, 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 and to get those type of effects. And now a plugin will do that for you. Um, yeah, I, I think back in those days, we were always pushing the envelope to, to uh, you know, find a sound. We had... Um, a limited set of microphones. We we had a limited set of whack effects, and you know now you have a plethora of, of, of plugins that you can use. And um, one of my uh, one of my great uh, inspirations as an engineer uh, back in the eighties was uh, Umberto Gattaca, and he was the uh, engineer for Chicago, and um, he was known for um, very simplistic process. And, and so when you listen to like Chicago 17 or um, Chicago 18, those, those two albums specifically, um, he he had basically a, uh, a box that he carried that had four rack effects in it. And no matter which studio he went to, that, that was it. And that's all he used. And so he was, in his recording process and his approach to the original uh, mixes was, was very straightforward, very simple. He knew what he wanted. Um, he had the gear that he used to achieve it. And no matter what studio he went to, that's what he used. Um, and I thought we thought that was interesting because you, you look at stories of, um, you know, in Sound City with the young board and, and how many hits were recorded over that board because it has such a, a unique sound to it. Um, you know, I think uh, analog equipment, has its own identity, and I think a lot of that today, with whether you're using uh, you know Logic Pro or Pro Tools or or, or you know Sonar, um, it's much different. Like the algorithm is virtually the same, um, and the plugins are, are they're just a digital version, digital footprints of what the originals used to be. A lot of what we see now is modeled after that. Yeah, I, I have seen a lot of that, but without the um 
without the hands-on skill to know how to really manipulate that and, and make it, you know, if I'm going to use this board emulation, I really should understand that board. Right. And I don't really know that people now get the opportunity to do that because they're, they don't have the chance to work on the board. They're just working with the simulation and doing the best they can with it without really utilizing that power, which is why you would buy that plug-in in specifically. Right. And I think, I think a, a big lesson that, that anybody can learn that wants to get into being an engineer or a producer or, you know, uh, into the industry is the one thing they, they have to learn, they have to experience what sound really is, what something should sound like. And, and as you and I, as musicians, we know what a drum kit sounds like, we know what a piano sounds like, we know what a guitar sounds like. We are true musicians. Um, and, and we've been into to a studio, and, and, and I sat back and, and during a session and watched the mix engineer. Um, you know, their job is just to catch the sound. It's really, you know, when it goes to, to mastering and, and stuff like that, where it's all altered and polished for, for radio. Um, you know, my earliest experience in the studio was, was hearing uh, the mix engineer go in and he, he throws on a tape and, and it's, it's, uh, you know, a Rolling Stone song and, and he's like, I use this to tune my ear. He goes, because to me, this is one of the purest recordings I've heard. And, you know, I asked him, what do you mean by pure? And he's like, well, it's, it's, it's virtually just them playing in the studio with very little process about it. And so he kind of gave me his thought process as, as to, you know, I tune my ears with this until I sit down to record. This is, this is you know, the, the, the purest form that I want to capture. Um, you know, we go in and, and, and when we record live, um, we capture the signal, you know, as clearly as possible with, with the, uh, you know, as little headroom as we can, you know, as much headroom as we can squeeze into the digital nowadays. But, um, but back then, you know, it, it really was capturing the, the true sound and, you know, we would, we would multi-track and, and you would move microphones around the room to, to capture, you know, uh, a vocalist and, and the reverb of the room by doing that. And now it's all done virtually by using a reverb algorithm on, on some plugin. So the process back in, 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 in capturing sound, I, I think for, for me, talking to anybody that, that that's wanting to get into the industry. They have to experience what true, real sound is. It's not coming from, you know, a $300 uh, boombox. It's not coming from, you know, an iPhone with an MP3 on, on beat headphones. That's not true, realistic uh, sound. You know, it, 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 it's listening to, to high-end audio that reproduces as accurately as possible the original recording. And I think that anybody that's had an experience uh, something like that understands the true meaning of capturing a recording. I mean, with audio today, it's still true today, but there's so many home recordings that get snatched up and, and get processed and put out on radio. Um, and a lot of stuff today is, is electronic. But, um, you know, it's, anybody that's getting into the industry has to understand, as an engineer, the your responsibility of capturing, you know, capturing the, the sound of, of what you're, you're, you're dealing with. Oh, absolutely. Bands and, 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 and singer and songwriters and artists all spend time developing their sound before they ever step in the studio. They perform live 
and in front of many audiences. And so that's the sound they want when they, when they, most of the time when they come in and, and want you to record them. And so it's important as, as an up and coming engineer that if you want to do this, you have to experience what real sound is before you step behind a, a you know, a computer and, and you can record something and, and know what you're doing. I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. And, and I think that's, you know, part of the reason that I had asked you the question about were you glad that you learned how to do this in the analog world? Because I feel very much the same way. But do you kind of think that, as you said earlier, because most of the things that people are listening on now are things that completely distort the sound, whether it be a Bluetooth speaker or earbuds, you know, things that are not made to really bring out the sound, do you think that the majority of the, the engineer's work is getting lost in the delivery system? I... I... Well, okay, I think that most inexperienced engineers don't understand. Part of the mastering process is making sure that no matter what device that, that product is, that, that song is played across, that you can hear the kick drum, the bass guitar, you know, you can hear every instrument, whether it's, you know, a three-inch speaker or a multi-million-dollar sound system. It's all going to sound good on, 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 on every device that's played on. And that's always a challenge when it comes to, to mastering anything is, is, you know, I worked on, on huge studio speakers and, you know, I worked, I worked with producers that they use the old school, you know, uh, mix cubes, which are, are little small five and a quarter inch speakers in the box. And, it was always ever said back then, if you can make it sound good on those, it'll sound good on anything. But um, a lot of what you talked about is, is, is really up to the master engineer. And, and um, I agree that there's so many different devices that, that people listen uh, to. And, and, and granted, like the quality of, of car stereos have come a long way. Factory car stereos are fantastic now compared to what they were in, in the 60s, 70s, and even in the 80s. Um, you find that, that um, like I said, I, I think that we still mix and master for speaker systems, but I think that there needs to be some thought into mixing for headphones as well. Um, because a lot of people listen on um, whatever's provided with their, their, their phone. You know, I, I see a lot of people with, with uh, headphones on. Yeah, that does seem to be the uh, the common way to do it. And and even if you're listening on an iPod, you're still having to transmit through a radio station to get to your own stereo. Right. And and so there again, there's you know a chance of quality loss because it depends on frequencies and if there's any interference in in an area that you drive through. Like when I drive near downtown Las Vegas, uh, I can just forget about my iPod completely because it it just cuts out no matter what station I'm on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you master separately for iTunes, right? You do a different master for, for anything that's uploaded there. That's correct, yes. Yeah. Um, iTunes is simply because that you can master to make an MP3 sound more like, more closer to the original recording, the original master. Obviously, the encoding process for MP3 really gets a compression tool and a decompression tool is what MP3 is. So, in, in that process of compressing it down to a smaller file and then decompressing it when it's played back, you lose a lot of, of, of the quality of, and dynamics of the audio. Um, and so the process of mastering for iTunes um, kind of 
it's a plug and all that stuff, but it allows you to open up that MP3 and, and make it more, uh, sound more close to the original source than, than the, uh, uh, MP3 was never, I, I really thought, um, you will come up to me all the time and say, you know, my MP3 sounds really good. I'm like, no, MP3 sounds good. But it's one of those things that, yeah, it, it, as an engineer, MP3 sounds good. They're, 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 they don't. Yeah. Um, but it's the only thing that we have to listen to. But honestly, um, at first I thought Master Frightened was a game I think, so I, I, I started getting into, uh, listening to it more. And, you know, even Isotope now, um, allows you to, um, Listen to what your 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 final mix will sound like as an MP3, whether it's 320 kps or, or whatever. It allows you, so it gives you the ability to tweak your your final mix to to brighten it up or maybe loosen up some of the dynamics so it doesn't get over compressed when it, it's processed as an MP3. So the idea behind master fights is is really to improve. Or get your your final product as MP3 closer to the uh, the original source. Right. So you're when you when you work with that in the process to upload to iTunes, it's really not just iTunes, right? It's Amazon, Google Play, it's anywhere where that MP3 is going to be the purchase format. That's correct. I, Master's iTunes is a standard. It, it is a standard process. And when I say that, it's it's standardized. But um, you know there is. There is some guidelines to, into doing it, um, and now they've kind of loosened up on it because they don't label everything as much anymore for master pricing. But in the early days, it was, which I, like I said before, I thought it was a gimmick, but it really wasn't. It was a standard that, that Apple had set um, for, you know, the, the, the quality of their MP3s. Not that it improved the quality, it just it, it, it gave it, I guess the best way to describe it is that it gives you closer to the original data of the original source. And do you think that the MP3 format is going to be kind of fading away as MP4s seem to be the new thing? Uh, no. I don't. MP4 to me is, is still a, a video standard. I think it's, um, there's a couple of different video codecs that are out there, but MP4 is I, I think still a video standard. Um, while it does have... Um, some qualities of, of, of audio that are, are, are a little better than, than MP3. Um, I see MP4 more as a, a video format. I don't think MP3 is going away. I don't see it. Yeah, I, I have to agree. And, I, you know, I hear a lot of talk about, uh, well, iTunes is going to be phased out within the next year, but I've been hearing that for the last six or seven years. And it's kind of like Social Security. You know, we were told as kids that, yeah, when it's time to collect Social Security, it's not going to be around anymore. So thanks for paying into the system for nothing. Right. Uh, I think it's just one of those things that's like always going to be a rumor until it's replaced with something. But even once it's replaced, it's going to still be around for a long time before it's completely phased out. I agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I, uh, you know, the generation that's coming up is starting to, to, to embrace some of the, uh, older technologies, you know, with the resurgence of vinyl, um, and even cassette is making a, a resurgence. As a matter of fact, um, I had read something last week that vinyl sales have surpassed that of CD sales, uh, for two, in, back in 2017. Really? However, the numbers for vinyl, the number for vinyl sales only includes new vinyl. It, it's not. It's not part like the used vinyl sales are not factored into that number. And you know, I I love love perusing 
the the records that have popped out and the ones the, the ones that have survived to the um, just perusing the old vinyl section, you know, the, the two and three dollar vinyl record. I love that. It doesn't that that number doesn't account for the sales, but that's pretty pretty staggering to know that that vinyl sales are are, are growing so greatly, and the fact that somebody's wanting to shell out you know twenty twenty five dollars for better for vinyl is is I think it's fantastic. It's great for artists because no. And, and the fact that artists get more revenue off of vinyl sales than they do from PD or, or MP3 sales anymore. So, you know, there is there is some positive in, in um, the resurgence of, of vinyl. I know that you and I had discussed some time ago because I, I've i always embraced vinyl. I think it, it should have never gone away, but it did. Um, and I love the pops and clicks and turntable table rumble. I, I just think vinyl sounds better than, than MP3 any day. Um, I, I, uh, I'm so happy to see that that final is coming back and that the younger generation is embracing it. I do too. You and I had had a discussion about how the uh, the whole process of nowadays is done with final because everything is digitally recorded. And you know, back in the old days, uh, you know, the master tape went to the uh, the guy uh, Bob Ludwig back in the day did a lot of uh, final masters. He's the guy that would cut the uh, the master disc that would press all the vinyl records and. You know, you're kind of at the mercy of him if he, he had a mix board too and he could change your audio. But, um, you know, there was an art to, to, uh, mastering for pressing, you know, vinyl. And, and nowadays it's digitally done. I, you like, I was like, I'm not sure how to do that. Like, you know, what source they're using to, to, you know, create the, the master disc to press vinyl. But, um, evidently, it's a, it's a digital press, and, and some of the uh, old school uh, recordings are, are digitally remastered for vinyl as well, too. So, um, you know, my thing with digital is always had a harshness to it, but um, some of the, some of the reissued vinyl actually sounds really good. I'm actually really impressed with it. It's almost an oxymoron to say digitally mastered for vinyl. Because vinyl was, you know, about not being digital. I doubt. But I have to wonder if part of the popularity isn't based on the fact that the the majority of of the younger people that are buying it didn't grow up with the vinyl we did. They're used to MP3s. They're used to that digitally enhanced, you know, digital warmth enhanced music. Yeah. And they don't really see the difference between today's vinyl versus the vinyl of the 70s. There, and, 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 you know, to be honest with you, like, the remastered versions just sound really good. Like, once we get past, like, once we got past some of the, uh, the really bad hacks off the remaster that I've heard out there, some of the remastered stuff for vinyl sounds really good. First of all, vinyl just has, um, it, it, it's, it has better audio, uh, than an MP3 will. So, you know, the bass is not going to be sounding like some of the, uh, beat on a box and it's going to have definitely like a much tighter baseline uh, much just even the high end and, and the width of the audio is much better I think than you know when you listen to a good comparison is if you listen to uh, and I like to always do this with the people that come over and like oh you're like this yeah so I have an original pressing of like a, a Stevie Nicks Belladonna and one of like the, the songs that I made that off is the edge of 17 so I'll, I'll throw the MP3 up on the same receiver that my turntable is hooked up to and then I'll listen to it and then I'll put the vinyl record on and instantly it's nine day difference like there's no the comparison is is, is listening to you know uh, just a bad recording 
person has a much wider sound to it. It has a much more distinct um, guitar and, and, and kick drum in it than the MP3 does. The kick is literally is lost in, in, in the MP3 version. So it, it, it definitely, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to see that. I don't care how cheap of a stereo system they're listening to vinyl on. It, it's going to sound better than the MP3 ever will through the same sort of speakers. Sure. So I would be curious if they if they remastered that from the original multi-track or if they just did it from the final pressing. If they were, I mean, because yeah, you can you can clean up the frequencies, but there's you're still a little bit limited if you're only working off of the master. Yeah, and honestly, you and I both know that it's not coming. It, it, there's no way it's coming from the original multi-track. Um, I I would would not be surprised if it's a, a, if it's coming from a submaster or even the CD master, and they're they're cutting the uh, pressing from that. Um, when you remaster something like it's easy enough, especially with, with the tools that are out there. I mean, R seven will clean up any any bad recording, any noise problems, any anything like that. So. You know, R7 is an indispensable tool in, in, in that restoration industry anyways. And honestly, some of, I can't imagine the 60s and 70s recordings being really of quality 40-some, 50-some years later. Yeah. Um, because the very nature of magnetic tape is it's going to bleed through. It doesn't matter if it's kept at the proper temperature or not for the years. The nature, very nature of magnetic tape is it's going to bleed Oh sure, and and it's just going to degrade over time, and especially if it wasn't right. in some sort of like you know temperature protected uh, right. area. Forget it. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess that back in the eighties when there was a big push to get everything out on CD, much of what what we could capture was from the submasters, um, you know, that we could get from the studio, and then you know we'd have the engineers uh, EQ sheets and, and worksheets, and we'd work from that, but. The reality is that if it wasn't captured in the 80s or, or 90s, you know, from the original source to digital, then some of the alternatives were finding a vinyl press and, and, and processing that vinyl press and for, for a CD. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things that go on that yeah, I, we're not involved in, in that part of the industry, but, you know, I've seen it. I've I, I talked to people and... and you know, so it's no surprise to me that, that if if the recording, the original recording, was somehow at a degraded some point, they couldn't use it. It was a copy of vinyl or a CD that they they mastered that from. So well, even even back in the in the mid '90s, when Roger Glover went and started doing the remasters of the old Deep Purple albums from this from '69 to '74. Uh, I was amazed at, at how good because he actually did have the multi tracks, and I was amazed at how good they actually sounded because th- there wasn't. I mean, I, I'm sure they had to digitally enhance a certain amount of it from the the degradation over the years, but uh, they still sounded pretty good. But that was you're also yeah. talking '95, and it's 2018 now, so I'm sure whatever's left right. of those, uh, you know, would look like uh, the bottom of an ashtray. Right, and, and you know, like. <laughs> You know, like some of some of these guys that do the remasters. I mean, that's that with the digital age. Uh, let's face it you you can artificially create high end. You can artificially create, um, you know, bass. And so, if you have that very limited bandwidth, of, you know, back in the day when 
you were trying to get something on tape, you knew that if you cut the lower frequencies and the higher frequencies, you got with the person headroom and, and yet some sets, you know, oversaturate the tape with the recording. Um, you know, nowadays who even worries about that? We we have literally almost infinite headroom now with digital, but um you know, you, you worked with, yeah, a lot of the recordings, at least for mainstream music, a lot of stuff was, was chopped just to, to fill it in. But then there were some really good engineers that, um, you know, didn't do that. Like, they were they were curious for, for the recording. And, and you know, you had mentioned the uh, the changes in audio in the 80s. And there was a, another change, though, that at least within the pop industry that really affected the sound of music, and that was the just the electronic age itself. I mean, synthesizers were getting more popular throughout the 70s, and a lot of bands like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer used them quite heavily. But, right. you know, it, it really wasn't until the 80s when so much of it became synthesized. I mean, we started using electronic drums. We started using electric bass or, or electronic bass sounds. Right. Uh, and sometimes instead of having a bass player in the band at all, you just had three or four keyboard players. That made it cleaner because you didn't have as many instruments that you had to... Uh, I mean, it was still recorded analog, but it was a, more of a digital sound, right. which I would imagine was probably easier to mix. But at the same point, I think that was part of what really set the sound, because even the rock bands started using more keyboards, and it just kind of changed the way music sounded. Right. No, I agree. Um, you know, one of the first keyboards that I ever bought um, was a Yamaha DX7, which was used all over pop music and, and R&B and, and the 80s, and it's still sampled and it still exists out there now. It's, you know, I think uh, everything that Yamaha makes, was, this DNA is based out of the, uh, the DX7 anyways. But to be honest with you, like, the, the DX7, the sounds that came out of it were fantastic, but they were very... Very flat and thin sound, and so I'm always amazed at how they took these um, these sounds and, and, and made them fuller and bigger the, the way they did. Um, but part of that is, is you know, with 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 anything electronic, always such a clean signal going in, and so you have a clean signal to work with. It's really easy to manipulate, fatten up, or widen when you have a, a clean signal. Um, you know, basically with the DX7, it's just FM synthesis. So it's a, it's a, it's a fine wave and, and, you know, it's easy to manipulate. Those things were, were, that my, I remember spending months learning how to program, um, patches and those things. Um, but, you know, now, again, like, we use a, a MIDI board and some other, uh, you know, MacBook or whatever to, Create the sound that 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 we do live with, with some of these these bands nowadays. Um, but you know, we 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 really like God. As a synthesizer, practically killed the rock industry. Um, even now, like rock is what is that? Like it doesn't exist. It's it's so everything is is so different. Um, the way it sounds nowadays. Um, you know, uh, you look at. We jokingly laugh that you can never have enough plugins, and, and I don't know. I think some time ago I stopped buying them because the reality is that um, you have what you have for a reason, and, and if you don't like it and you don't use it, you can always get rid of it and delete it off your computer. Um, you know, my my workflow and, and, and what I do, I still still kind of old school. I, I really, you know, just just listen to. Umbro Gattaca and interviews and 
this process. I, I just kind of agree with that. I think that, you know, like they're straightforward, and, and I think that you layer to get the big sound, you know, the, the Phil Spector wall of sound. You just keep layering it, and, and, and you get it that way. Um, and with digital, it's easy because you paste and copy everything, you know. You, you print a track and, and you duplicate it, and, and all of a sudden it's bigger. You know, so um, I, I I I like using effects. I'm still very I use them sparingly. I, I think that reverb plays a huge part, and depending on what instrument, I think it's it's uh, it's invaluable for creating space and depth in in, in, in your recordings. Um, obviously, you know, reverb combined with delay gives you. You know, some of the bigger vocals, but I, I, I really try to keep it pretty straightforward. I, I know guys out there that will stack plug in upon plug in, and, and I'm thinking that's great that you do that. Um, you know, I keep, I keep everything on, on sends and, and, you know, I run it that way, and sometimes I'll, I'll stack, you know, um, effects into a channel, but kind of curious when it, when it comes out like that. I always, you know, it, to me, it's a signal saying you get the cleanest possible recording that you can, and then, you know, you, you have a, a target idea of what you're you're looking for and, and the sound. And, and so, uh, you know, um, I see a lot of guys that, that just throw tons of effects into the channel and then we'll slap a, uh, a compressor you know, on the master, I'm like, that's just not how you do it. That's not how you, you want to create a sound. You know, it's an art. It's an art, and it's experimentation. And every engineer has their own uh, flow. And to me, I think that, you know, a straightforward approach. I still kind of go old school. I don't need, you know, wall-to-wall lack of effects, or I don't need 300 plugins to achieve the sound you know, that I'm looking for. Yeah, I'm with you. I I think a lot of the sounds themselves uh, have been developed so well nowadays that a lot of them, unless you want something specific for that sound, that it's not part of the original sound that you're using, like maybe you want a little bit of a tremolo on on a keyboard sound or something. Most of those tracks I find these days that I don't really do much with it. I manipulate the instrument itself, but I don't need external plugins. No, I agree with you. I'm the, in the same way, I think the quality of what's out there right now is really, really good. It is. Um, and that the, the idea of creating something original comes from tweaking the plug-in itself, the knobs and, and you know, the, whatever, uh, you know, uh, generator you're using. It's learned to manipulate the generator. Right. You know, I, I, I hear a lot of the same sounds on radio nowadays. I'm just thinking... That's a preset. It couldn't go anywhere outside of preset and create something new. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm always like, when I hear something that I hadn't heard something that I've heard before, that always makes me happy. But every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, that's just something this song or this song or this song or this song. You know, it's somebody using a preset, you know, right out of, out of uh, alchemy and, and logic or, or, you know, uh, uh, something in contact. You know, it's, 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 it's Everybody kind of uses the same thing. There are a really a lot of industry standard uh, companies out there that make some really fantastic products. Um, and there's only something new coming out, uh, you know, tomorrow. Um, and I kind of felt like when I started into to, uh, building my, my own studio and starting to purchase plugins, I thought I'd keep it up with the Joneses because every week there would be something. I'm like, oh, I need that. 
So there's another $200 on this plug-in, or this this uh, suit came out, and i got to have this. And I'll be honest with you, like, uh, you know, I, I've been a Logic Pro user for a long time, and some of the, the generators that are in Logic Pro are really, really good emulations of, of, of different synths or drum machines or whatever out there. And so, you know, it's just getting in there and, and playing with, with the, uh, the knobs that are in that generator and create your own sound with it. Um, you know, I love the fact that, you know, in the digital world, you can create a template of, of your process and you can save it and use it over and over again. And next thing you know, you've got your, your whole album is linear because you use the same template, you know, to create your sound on, on each process. You know, back in, in, in the early days, you, before automation, you know, you, you took notes. You know, I, I, I said, you know, nine band parametric equalizer, I shelved this, I, 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 you know, push it here, tweak it here. And these were all engineer notes, you know. Now automation, you, it records every move you do, you know, and you can go back and, and edit that move and undo it. Like, I don't like that, that stage. It was too quick when you go back and edit it. You know, back in the old days, you had to go back and, and, and do the whole thing all over. Right, And yeah. get it right. You know, you just, like, well, I can, I can re-record the ending and take a razor blade and cut it out. But, yeah, it's so, it's so much easier now to, to, to do the manipulation and the things that you want. But I'll be honest with you, like, it's really easy to overdo things, like over-process or, or we, you and I have thought ourselves, you know, that we'll spend hours on a mix that's perfectly fine but we always feel like it can be better, you know? And it's because we have so many options. When you hit that mastering phase, you have so many options. You know, the mixing is always going to be something that, 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 that from an engineer standpoint is, or producer standpoint is going to be preference. Sometimes the vocal's too far up front. Sometimes the, 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 the whatever, the tone the is too far to left. These are all subjective. I think that when, when you're mixing a, a project, it's subjective. When it comes down to, to making it radio ready and going into that master phase, the mix part of it has to be there. Um, but mastering is, is it's not for everybody. Like you, it, it's not. Mastering is a science. It, it's a, a it's something that you just can't. It, making something radio ready is not. In, in ozone or preset, it's much more complicated than that. And unfortunately, I see too many of these the, uh, people that just think that, hey, this sounds great. I'm like, yeah, turn the oscilloscope on that. Let's take a look at your face. Let's see where we're at. Because, you know, if you're too, uh, too much out of phase information and somebody's listening to it on, you know, what, an iPhone 5 that has a, a single speaker, it can blend in a serious signal to a mono speaker. Well, half your information's been canceled out, so it's not going to play very loud on that on that that speaker device. Or you know, you have a, a Bluetooth speaker that's a single speaker and not stereo. It, it, all of a sudden, your 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 volume is dropped. You go from one song to this song, and the other song is louder, but yet you know, on your on your your meters, you're you're pegging it. But you know, why is it so quiet? Well, so much out of phase information. You go back and see what with cancel it and, and fix it. You know, that's, that's what, you know, the mastering process is. 
But a lot of times too, you won't, you won't, I mean, a, a less experienced engineer would not find problems in their mix until they start mastering because they're not using a widener. They're not bringing out all those frequencies. Correct. And then when you go into mastering, all of a sudden, wow, the vocal really is too loud. Yeah. I need to go back to my mix and fix that and then export it again into mastering. Uh, but let me ask you, what, what is your, because I struggle with this and, and I imagine a lot of people do. At what point do you finally say, this is the final mix, instead of, let me just try one more thing? Because that seems to be my, all right, I'm just going to, all right, it's done, I'm happy with it, but let me just try this one. You know, where do you, where's your line where you say, this is a final mix? I think when I sit in my car and I listen to the mix and it puts a smile on my face, that's the point I'm done. And that's that. That's a whole lot of running back and forth, but that's the reality. Um, you know, I can I can listen to it in my studio. I can throw it onto a uh, you know onto a, a CD, uh, burn it to a CD or a flash drive, and I can run it upstairs and and, and listen to it on, on the uh, the upstairs stereo. Um, all the way up to my car, I listen to my car. For me, because I, I think that a lot of people listen to music. In their cars, I, I think that's probably one of the, the, the key environments for me to know when it, when a mix is done, when I'm, when I just got it where it needs to be. Um, and, and I'll be honest with you, like that, that could be, that process can be a day, it can be two weeks on a, on a track. I, I, I try to, to not overthink uh, a mix because obviously as, as engineers, as uh, creators, um, we will be the most, we will be our biggest critics. And at some point, you know, when, when I hear it and listen to it and it makes me smile and I'm good with it, and that's where I stop. And, um, that usually is, is when I'm in my car. That, that to me is probably one of the most critical environments for, for any of my, you know, anybody that, that loves music. Um, and I, I think, I, I think that, you know, down, down the road, I really want to take a closer look at, at, at what my mix is, um, really sound like on, on headphones. Um, cause I just think that there's a big market, you know, for that, 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 that uh, listening area that, that's kind of, uh, not, uh, being passed. I would agree with that. We mix a lot. You know, we, we have, uh, engineers that mix around. We have engineers that, you know, we'll, we'll remix, uh, we reverse engineer our work for radio or for satellite radio, for whatever. There are engineers that undo what we, we spend hours doing. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that, that we still have a large target audience that listens on headphones. And um, we all know that we mix, that, that the, the, the way that sounds delivered on the speaker is much different than, uh, you know, earbuds. So. Yeah, and that, that reminds me, actually, the other format uh, is television, because now we have uh, cable music channels. Yes. And people can, you know, pull up whatever their genre is and listen to that. Now, that's a whole different kind of speaker system because television speakers are not the, the typical audio speakers that we would listen to. And now you've got surround right. sound, you've got bass bins, you've got everything for television. Right. Uh, so that's a whole nother facet, you know. Right. And I know that's I, I, I laugh because, you know, you, you've, been to, you've been to my home studio, so, you, you know, I have those mixed cues. And they may, be, they may be very old, but they are still a valuable tool. Um, in my process, um, you know, to make something a long time, if you can make something sound good on those, they will sound good on anything. 
and I still hold true to that. It's so frustrating because the first time you, you play something that you've uh, you kind of think you're there with it, and you and you throw them up on on the art uh, mixtures, and then they sound horrible. Like, oh my god, you couldn't find a better speaker. But the reality is that if if you can if you can master it to sound good on, on those little fire speakers, they truly will sound good. Um, you know, I there's a trend that's been kind of in, in, in the music industry for decades, but things have gotten a lot more, you know, uh, like brighter and, and boomier in, 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 uh, in music in a lot of it because digital is valuable. Digital is good, you know. You have uh, ways to have their Mac base, which allows you to synthetically uh, enhance your, your lower frequencies without adding, you know, any, any volume to your mix. Um you know, you can get a lot of bass out of recordings nowadays, as well as you can get pretty bright and clean with uh, some of the recordings. But, you know, when you listen to, uh, um, you know, pop music now or even country music, it's very, uh, it's very dynamic. It's very open, uh, which I'm actually happy, happy to see that. Um, but it's very, to me, it's, it's a very boomy and very bright. <laughs> but I think it's also written written differently, too. I mean, if you look back, especially with country, is a good example, because you look back to, you know, the old days with country, it was very simplistic, very, uh, you know, it, it just sounded like they were in one tiny little room recording together. And now you've got, you know, the, the bigger artists are recording in really nice studios. All the instruments are isolated really nicely. And, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. The whole process is different, but that does allow for those mixes. It does allow you to bring in the highs and, and the lows just as easily. But uh, when they start brick wall limiting country, I'll give up. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, country is a new pop. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting how, you know, I had read uh, in um, most of the magazine that, you know, kind of predicts the, uh, the future. We all know that the, the major labels control top 40 radio and, and that's that's a lot of truth to that and, and you know thankfully independent artists can release on any medium and eventually break into that that mainstream market but um you know there 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 will be a day where you know spotify has really helped um the independent artists and i think the future of music is always going to be with independent artists years ago you know starting with artists was was hard pressed to get noticed you know, now with the power of, of, of YouTube and, and Facebook, uh, you know, you build your fan base and you can release, uh, you know, your, your, your music on, you know, iTunes and, and have it streamed on, on Spotify. I think it's a, it's a great new world. And I think that, you know, now that the labels have stopped playing games on how people get paid, you know, I think that, you know, the, the, the industry, it, there's some, been some interesting days, uh, you know, in the past couple of years with, with, uh, royalty payouts. And, you know, you, you see a lot of, a lot of home studios. I, you know, Craigslist to find advertisements for, you know, I'll record your music for, you know, your, your album for a hundred bucks and stuff like that. And, you know, those of us who, who worked years at our, our, our craft and, honed it and, and, and have education and background in, in music production and engineering, um, we get frustrated with it. But I think one of the things that, you know, I mentioned early on that, that it's really kind of a duty to educate and, and teach uh, this generation that's coming up because, you know, they have some pretty powerful tools at their fingertips, but it means nothing if they don't know how to use them. Yeah, and, very true. you know, I... 
I find that if, if somebody's not willing to spend money for my time, you know, to record the music, the least I could do is, you know what, let me show you something. Let me let me talk to you about a process. Let me talk to you about, you know, uh, a signal chain and, and, and things like that. Owning a good car doesn't make you a good driver. You have to learn how to operate that vehicle and how to park that size vehicle. That's correct. You know, I think that's the thing is that because there's so many things that are, are decently close preset-wise, I think for those people that don't have the patience or uh, feel like they, they want to take the time to really educate themselves, and, and it comes fairly obvious in, in listening to the mix who has gone through the process or hired somebody that, that knows what they're doing versus somebody who's doing that, just using the standard, Correct. Uh, you know, here's the template, you're doing rock vocal, so here's the rock vocal template, and go. Right. You know, and, it, and it's, it's a double-edged sword, this technology. I agree. The power, the power of digital technology is absolutely endless. And, you know, the, the fact that, you know, everybody wants to recreate the sounds of the 60s and 70s recording is fantastic, too. But the true way to do it is to understand how that was done. You know, I, I read a, 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 I did a lot of reasons that, I'm sorry, like I'm always fascinated on how something was created or sound was created. But um, it was something as simple as, as early as uh, guitar distortion and how it came about. And the first artist to, to use it was simply by accident because his guitar amp was damaged when they unloaded it in the back of the van. And it, and they could never, ever recreate that sound unless that amplifier actually died that night. But they could never recreate it. And, and so artists in the years cut the speakers and did all the craziest things until somebody in the in the uh, early 60s developed a, a bug distortion mod, so I didn't recall what it was. But I thought it was interesting that the first time that sound was because of a damaged amplifier. Um, because I've dropped mine many times. Let me tell you, you don't oh, yeah. that's changed the sound of it. I think a lot of things in, in life kind of happen that way. Ha- these, you know, sort of happy little accidents that that just create a new idea, or uh, you know, just yeah. anything. You know, I really wish I had something that did this, and then you know, somebody's going to come along and invent it. But uh, distortion has been such a huge. I can't imagine how different music would be because if it when it's written. You know, the the guitar player is typically the one that it heads up the writing of rock music. So, with a, you know, if a guitar player is just playing an acoustic or a clean sound, they're not going to write the same as in, in as they would having that power. You know, so I mean, music would be completely different today, right. just on that one invention. Well, and you know, but for guitarists, it really, and I, and I speak from personal experience, um, the sound of. Uh, guitar playing really revolutionized in, in the eighties when uh you know when, when you had hybrid amps and the uh the solid state and, and two amps and it changed the sound and you know effects were more were more commonplace and, and pedal boards and stuff like that. Um, you know, some of the early recordings that I worked on, you know, you would double track the guitarist, you know, and you have two or three guitarists that would play on a track and you know, one on the left, one on the right, and one in the middle kind of thing, and that's where you got your wits from. And nowadays, you know, with you can you can make a, a guitar sound or any instrument for that matter sound pretty wide in a mix. And you know, um, yeah, I you kind of miss I miss the old days of, of double tracking something the the uh, true way with take it, but um, you know, it, like I said, the time that you save compared to you know where it used to take. Months, even years to record an album, you can do fairly quickly nowadays, thanks to thanks to modern technology. 
Yeah. I, I mean, the album that I've got coming out uh, is the 25th album I've done, and I'm only 46. So, yeah, I, if I was recording the, the normal way, I would never have been able to you know, hire musicians and or even just get bands together to do those projects. And right. uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, it definitely does give us that, which which then causes the problem of market saturation and the the need for an artist to be more focused on marketing, almost more so than writing. Uh, it really has the, the whole game has changed completely because of those elements. Right. Right. No, I agree. Yeah, and nowadays with with uh, songwriting, it's it's a collaborative market. You know, there there uh, there are more and more artists that that tend to work together and write together and even perform together now than ever have been in the past. You know, there's which I think is great. I think that that's you know somebody that recognizes that. I have a limitation. I can write, but I have a limitation. But if I partner with somebody, uh, you know, the two of us or three of us can write amazing material. You know, even in hip-hop and, and, and rap, you know, there's several guys in some studio someplace that are, are just sitting there coming up with the, the next speech for, for whatever, you know, artist that they're, they're trying to, to sell their, their stuff to. But, you know, I think, you know, we, we've always ever talked about collaborations. And, again, with digital technology, you don't need to be in the same place, city, state, country anymore. There's, there's no boundary to how we can collaborate in, in, in this day and age. And, and uh, I think that's awesome. You know, even though you and I live in two different states, it doesn't mean we've, we've collaborated in businesses before. So... And you can even take it a step further and use a separate rec- computer from the one that you're recording on, and you can get on Skype, and you can even direct the session live, you know, with somebody that's in Russia or Germany or Italy. And right. uh, I, there's there's almost no boundaries anymore. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic. I think if people open their eyes and realize that, you know, in this day and age, you need to collaborate. It's not. It's 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 to me it opens more doors. You know. Um, you know, I know a lot of artists, and, and you and I are much the same way. We, we we do a lot of our own stuff, but I am not the drummer that you are, and, and I would totally, you know, you would, would have you on any any project that I did, you know, because I still prefer I still prefer a live drummer versus a drum machine. I think drum samples are great. I think they're there, but I'm I, I'm like you. I kind of like these little more complex uh, rhythm patterns when I'm working on on, on things that. Would take me a lot longer program than it would be to say, "Hey, Scott, I need you to do this for me." <laughs> well, plus there's a humanizing factor to it, and and I definitely feel the same way about you as a guitarist. That you know, I can I could write a track in MIDI and I can make it sound pretty decent, but what you're not going to get is. You know, it's it's too easy to make everything perfect and not human sounding. And even if you only quantize to eighty five percent or ninety percent right. to to try and get that humanity in it, it's not just that. It's the velocity of the note. It's how long you hold it. It's did I did I move my fingers off of the fret digitally the way a real guitar player would, or am I still sustaining a note that your finger? It's not even possible for you to be making that sound at this point. There's there's so many things that are just lost that way, and even like you said, just doing the you know the rhythm guitar part. Right. Uh, I think even that because the rhythm guitar part is going to be played a little bit differently. There's a different emotion. There's a different inflection to it, and that blended with the lead guitar part makes right. that song. Whereas if everything's just it's just it's just too perfect and precise now. I think live players are still the thing. No, I agree. And 
Fender are guitarists that have signature sounds. Like you, like Keith Richards has a very distinct style of playing. Nile Rogers has a very distinct style of playing. And this is stuff that's not captured. Like there is not a Keith Richards plug-in, guitar plug-in that emulates his style of playing. That's what that's not Rogers, you know, style of playing either. So, you, you know, there is, again, that I guarantee that today, as, as a musician, we all, we all, especially guitarists and, and bass players and, 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 and that plays a string instrument, we really strive to create our style and style of playing. Um, but I think for me, growing up as, as, a, as a guitarist, I didn't want to play whatever was on the radio. I wanted to, to really write my own material. And so, you know, I, I, I liked the sound that this guitar player had. I liked the sound of this guitar. So, you know, you buy the gear, the, the, the guitar that has, I, cause you know me, I'm a big fan of that. I, I just love that bright, that bright sound. So, you know, and I paired, and I paired up with a, with a, uh, a Marshall amp and, and, you know, going out of Gibson and Marshall anyway together. Well, it's a very different sound and Gibson has a, a very different sound than, than a Fender does. They're, they're polar opposites when it comes to sound. But I, I like that, that bright sound through a Marshall. I think you, uh, you know, you you build your own sound, and, and I have ten years crafting my sound, much like uh, you know Keith Richards has his, his style and sound of playing as, as much as any other mainstream guitarist out there does, or those session guitarists. Right, and and I think that that's it. It's finding that sound that works for you as a base model, and then tweaking it however it really fits your personality or that song or that group of songs or you know if it's an ep or an album or or whatever and you know now of course you can just buy the uh the jimmy hedrick setup and it, you know a few of the guitars have those those signature things but they don't right. but it's it's false because it doesn't give you his sound it doesn't give you his feel it gives you a certain element of his tone yeah it may be his amp settings it may be his pedal settings but that's but if you don't have the same brand of strings, the same pickups that are the same height, the same. There's a lot of variables when when it comes to to string instruments that give it that sound. And, and you know, God, back in in, in in some of the early days, like uh, you know, some some of guitars were were not tuned properly for whatever reason, and. You know, uh, it, it gave it that sound. A lot of old blues, uh, you know, blues music was like that. Everything's uh, not tuned properly or because they weren't using a really well-crafted, you know, uh, instrument to, to play on. Uh, homemade instrument for, you know. But it's everything, everybody that, that plays a string instrument, even drums, cause, you know, every drummer has, has a different sound as well. So just because you have... You know, a probe that is not going to sound like a, uh, a DW and, and you change the, uh, the heads and nose and then now it's a completely different sound. Every drummer has its own sound too, you know. And sadly, you know, nowadays you have drum replacement samples, which I, that makes me sad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Somebody, somebody physically sat there and played this and you went and replaced or played with samples. I think it's criminal, but it happens. It, it really does. But it, it does. And, you're right about the drummer because, you know, with a guitar player, I mean, your sound is going to change a little slight bit every time you turn on your amp. But if you've got the same setup, it's going to be reasonably the same. We change a drum head out and the drum sounds different. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's, it's, you know, 
it's when the guitar strings will wear out. But yeah. it's a good guitarist can use the strings before any session, anyways. But the drummer, it's not economically viable to train to change your head. And as you play and you you tune your drum, you know, from before each session, you you stretch the head. It, it, it definitely you know makes a difference. Well, I, I do have one uh, one more question for you uh, before we go. And uh, you you've record or you've mixed for other bands. Like they'll send you their tracks and and you mix it and master it for them. What advice would you give a band sending you their their finished recording to uh, to help make the job go cleaner, which in, in turn gives them a better sound and keeps their cost down? What can they do to set up their session to get a good mix? I would tell them to lay off the effects, mostly compression. A lot of what I ran into when somebody would send me something is that there, each track would be heavily compressed. I don't know because everybody wants to record and to be louder and that, that the mixing process is not where you do it. And, and there's a huge misconception for that. And the biggest offender are, are, are they, they always want to heavily compress drums and there's a way to Process drums and make them louder without compressing them, and, and that that's just an experience. And so, you know, a lot of artists that, that brought me their stuff just want to load up with a play. They throw reverb on it. They they got compressors. Now, bring me a clean track. Let me let me decide what's best. If that's what you want, let me do it on on my end. Don't don't send me a recording with this loaded with effects and compression. It's it's, it's much, it makes it much harder because then, then, then you're into having to process it through RX, you know, and clean it up and, and, and remove the reverb and try to open it up, you know, and sometimes they squash it so much that you can't even expand and get the dynamics back into recording. But honestly, anybody that, 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 that goes that route where they, they record it and, and mix the material and, and send it to me, I always want to send it back to it's like, you know what, can you just get rid of all the effects? and the compression and just send it to me the way it is and, and let me do that on my end. I think I think that any engineers will man that that's taken on somebody else's uh, material they recorded. They it, it's always like they want to have it almost radio ready for you and it, it's not. It really is and, and yeah uh, it's a process and, and so you know if you're sending me a recording that's already loaded up with uh, effects compression and reverb or whatever. It makes it a lot harder to work with. Yeah, and they're really locking you into a box as to what you can do with it because if the dynamics are already present, you might not be able to do what you need to do to get that to sound. Yeah. Better. Now, if they if they want something like you know their level of distortion, their tremolo, you know anything that they've got, that's okay. But it's you're really talking more about the dynamic side. Correct. Yeah. If they're if they're if they've got. You know all that. You know because they're they're like you and I will record, obviously record a clean guitar for one channel, and 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 the effects are on that guitar on the other channel. So you you have the ability to manipulate it and and create a sound. I not be locked into just a disorder guitar or guitar that's heavy effected from from the pedal board. Um, but you know a lot of these artists that that are come up and coming that that want to record their own stuff or just they'll record. Be affected, uh, you know, uh, um, say, you know, guitar with a phaser or distortion from their pedals and not create a separate clean channel. And then they'll send it with, with a stack, you know, 
know, more effect on top of it, a wider, you know, a, a high-frequency enhancer, whatever, and then a compressor. They have three effects after they're, they're, they're recorded and they're sending to you that way. Like, this, you got the effect, you know. I, I really like that there, it doesn't cost anything to record a clean channel out of the pedal board, you know, and the effects of channel and give you the ability to work with it. Because a lot of times I think the plugins will create a much better sound than a pedal board will, you know, for distortion or whatever. So. Certainly it's something that you, you have the ability to control more of too. Right, right. A lot of a lot of artists do that. A lot of artists will in, in a big studio plug into the board and whatever Pro Tools offers, you know, whatever plugin you have, like I I the best trash. That used in, in so many different recordings, but you get such a better distortion from trash than you will from, you know, an old boss distortion pedal. And you can open it up. Like you can really open up with with a, with a, some of the effects. Basically on the clean channel. It also allows you some blending opportunities that you wouldn't necessarily get because you might want to blend a little bit of that clean sound into the distorted sound. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so, you know, my advice is that, that you know, if, if you're going to record and, and, and send your material to somebody to, to make the master for you, you, you have to send a really clean product, you know, and, and, and be clear about what you want, to, your ultimate, what you want ultimately in the end. Um, and like you know, they're so fun, you know, D and W is are literally infinite in the channels they offer. So, you know, you can record and, and, and multi track a guitar, a snare as many times as you need to to achieve the effect you're looking at. Sometimes I would rather multi track something than use an effect. So, um, you know, I, I just encourage that, you know, the more that you have to work with when you send it to, to, to be mixed or mastered, the easier it is to achieve that desired end result without spending hours upon hours fixing the recording that you were given. So, and that's what I found, is I just spent so much time fixing recordings before I could even mix them. Yeah, I, and I, I ran into some of that too with some of the sessions that have been sent to me, and uh, I, I kind of had a feeling that that was going to be <laughs> the direction that you're going to take with the answer. So, uh, well, thank you, Randy, so much. It's, it's you know, it's always a great time talking to you, and uh, I, I really hope that you'll come back and, and talk to us again because you have a lot of uh, insight because you've seen a lot of facets of the industry that a lot of people haven't, and uh, you know, you've you've definitely got an ear for for mixing as we've worked, you know, known each other for a few years now and worked together and. And uh, you, know, you you always give me great feedback on my mixes. You're you're the point for me where I know it's done because when I send it to you, uh, whatever feedback you give me is all that I need to do. That's all that's left at that point. I appreciate uh, and that. And I'm always just like, oh my god, what's he going to say to this one? And uh, and then you'll come back with, no, no, you might just want to do this or do that. Uh, and then I'm, and then you say, but and you always say, but it's no big deal. You and I are the only ones that would notice. And uh, my response to that is, well, then I got to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I always appreciate the confidence that you have, in, you know, in me when, when you do send your, your your stuff. And it's always a pleasure, talk shop. It's always a pleasure to, you know, when we exchange uh, messages on, on on Facebook as well. Um, you know, I, I couldn't be uh, prouder uh, to know you uh, as long as I have. Uh, 
you know, you yourself, and you know this, were, were, was a, uh, a person I reached out to mm-hmm. um, when I was looking to get into composing music. It was actually your book, and I couldn't have been happier because when, when you and I first met, I was like, oh, my God, I know a famous person, and <laughs> and I still do. And, and I'm honored to be, you know, a friend and, and a colleague, uh, you know, with you. So it's always, always my honor when, when you reach out to me and, and, and we have these conversations. Well, thank you. It's... it's it- very mutual, my friend. Very mutual. Well, thank you very much, Randy, for coming on the show. Hope you have. Uh, hope you'll come back and visit us again. And uh, you have a great night. Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. You too. Now, see what I tell you. Absolute wealth of information. Real joyful to talk to. Uh, very intelligent. Very well versed on his art and the business in general. And he's he's honestly just been a, a fantastic friend. It's. It's weird, you know, when uh, when you live in the same city with people, you think, oh, we'll get together, we'll do it next week, we'll do it next week, and the next thing you know, somebody's moving, and uh, you kind of really wish that you'd spent more time taking advantage of the time that you had. Happens everywhere I go, so I'm trying to learn and, and do better. Uh, please make sure that you leave your reviews and ratings on iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening. Write me at scott at scotthaskin.com if you have any questions or want to let me know anything. Also, let me know where you're listening to the show. I'd like to get an idea of, of uh, kind of where we're where we're heading so thank you guys so much for listening to another episode hope you enjoyed it as much as i did and we'll see you on the next episode